0: Hi, welcome to the show. Today's episode is Chapter 5, Send in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. It's a good one. By the way, thesquatchfest.com now has a buy here button for the 2023 Summer Solstice Celebration Squatch Fest. Yes, for a super ultra limited time until November 1st. Tickets are a hundred bucks. And if you use the coupon code Brian, you get 10% off. So, Squatch Fest tickets are now on sale. There is now a buy now button, thesquatchfest.com, or on the Telegram group. Just click on the link. All right, that's the hottest, latest news on with the show. scraps. Yeah, you come by me. Okay. Come here. Oh, hey, I guess we went live ha! <laughs> that's fucking hilarious oh so sorry uh i was adjusting the uh oh i was adjusting the light panel because i was getting scorched out here in the greenhouse and scrappy wanted to jump on board um yeah okay today's thursday so we're gonna onward with the uh zen of the art of motorcycle maintenance series um we're up to chapter five this is a great chapter um I got my little notepad over here. I'm going to uh, put Scrappy down here, take some notes along with you. And uh, yeah, I'll stop it here. And again, when he goes back and forth between the motorcycle phase and the the Chattaqua phase. Uh, yeah, whatever. We'll find some spots to stop. If it's your first time joining us uh, on Thursdays, I basically do a virtual book club. Um, right now we're doing Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert Persig. Uh, today we're on Chapter 5, doing a chapter a week, uh, so this is going to run about 36 weeks. Um, uh, the subtitle of this book is uh, An Inquiry into Values. Um, chapter 5, we're just getting to the beginning of the philosophical underpinning of the book, of the actual inquiry. Um, so, on with the show on with the show super dog scrappy okay we might have to adjust some volume we'll just we'll see here how it goes the art of motorcycle maintenance by robert m Persig read by yours truly scrambling chapter five the flatness of the prairie disappears, and a deep undulation of the earth begins. Fences are rarer, and the greenness has become paler. All signs that we approach the high plains. We stop for gas at Hague and ask if there is any way to get across the Missouri between Bismarck and Moe Bridge. The attendant doesn't know of any. It is hot now, and John and Sylvia go somewhere to get their long underwear off. The motorcycle gets a change of oil and chain lubrication. Chris watches everything I do with some impatience. Not a good sign. My eyes hurt, he says. From what? From the wind. We'll look for some goggles. All of us go in a shop for coffee and rolls. Everything is different except one another. So we look around rather than talk, catching fragments of conversation among people who seem to know each other and are glancing at us because we're new. Afterward, down the street, I find a thermometer for storage in the saddlebags bags and some plastic goggles for Chris. The hardware man doesn't know any short route across the missouri either (coughs) i love that part when they walk into the diner (coughs) and everyone's talking about local shit because they're so far out in the plains and they're the new right they're looking at everything because it's all new to them but they're being looked at by everyone else because they're the new thing in the scene oh yeah if you've never gone to like hometown bars not in your hometown best thing you can do as you get there is just do bar shit like yeah yeah they're all going to look at you because you are the new thing but it doesn't mean you're fucking special you're just there and you're the new thing so they've been in the same bar for a year sitting on the same stool looking at the same shit they don't really care you're just interesting because you exist i love it west coast study the map I had hoped we might find an unofficial ferry boat crossing or footbridge or something in the 90 mile stretch but evidently there isn't any because there's not much to get to on the other side it's all indian reservation we decide to head south to Mobridge bridge and cross there the road south is awful choppy narrow bumpy concrete with a bad headwind, going into the sun, and big semis going the other way, these roller coaster hills speed them up on the downside and slow them up on the upside, and prevent our seeing very far ahead, making passing nerve-wracking. The first one gave me a scare because I wasn't ready for it. Now I hold tight and brace for them. No danger, just the shock wave that hits you. It's hotter and drier. At Herod, John disappears for a drink while Sylvia and Chris and I find some shade in a park and try to rest. It isn't restful. A change has taken place, and I don't know quite what it is. The streets of this town are broad, much broader than they need be, and there is a parlor of dust in the air. Empty lots here and there between the buildings have weeds growing in them. The sheet metal equipment sheds and water tower like those of previous towns, but more spread out. Everything is more run down and mechanical looking. and sort of randomly located. Gradually I see what it is. Nobody is concerned anymore about tidally conserving space. The land isn't valuable anymore. We are in a Western town. We have lunch of hamburgers and malts at May and W place in Mo. Yeah, if you haven't driven across the whole country or lived around the country. uh, Yeah, I mean, I've lived from uh, Pittsburgh, to Michigan, Chicago, Phoenix, Seattle. Newport Beach. Uh, So if you haven't been out west and you live anywhere east of the Mississippi, for sure, Chicago and east. Land has a different, uh, yeah, when he talks about like getting out to the west, Shit's not tidy. Nobody gives a fuck about space. Um, yeah, like West Texas, like Arizona, New Mexico, Wild, Montana. Like, you just drive by and look, and there's just like shit everywhere when you're driving by homesteads, because they got like fucking like a 200 acres, cuz it's just shit, and they picked it up for like $25 a acre, $10 an acre back in the day, right? Because it was just nothingness except howling wind and fucking sand. <laughs> uh, yeah, and like towns developed out west more because they needed trading hubs of people doing shit, not down in the scrubby land. Like they were out like trapping, hunting, getting gold, going, extracting, wealth out of the environment so western towns tend to be like get out of a western town and there's nothing just desolate quickly right and then you get over that last set of mountains and you get to like 20 miles to the coast okay then it's a whole other fucking game you're back to east coast rules right land is incredibly valuable because you gotta go up and down you can't go back because mountains are right there it's all trapped into the coast right everybody wants to live on the coast yeah so when he's talking west he's talking about like the expansive west not that little razor fucking sliver edge down the water right that's what's so perverted about washington oregon california you have that fucking razor edge of 20 miles of land from the water that control, like the vastness. It's a five-hour, five-and-a-half-hour drive to the other side of the state, right? And you're talking about 18 minutes worth of people driving due east, control, five-and-a-half hours worth of land mass. Fucked up. It's the West. Welcome to it. Cruise down a heavily trafficked Main Street, and then there it is at the bottom of the hill, the Missouri. All that moving water is strange, banked by grass hills that hardly get any water at all. I turn around and glance at Chris, but he doesn't seem to be particularly interested in it. We coast down the hill, clunk onto the bridge, and across we go, watching the river through the girders moving by rhythmically. And then we are on the other side, We climb a long, long hill into another kind of country. The fences are really all gone now. No brush, no trees. The sweep of the hills is so great. John's motorcycle looks like an ant up ahead, moving through the green slopes. Above the slopes, outcroppings of rocks stand out overhead at the top of the bluffs. It all has a natural tidiness. If it were abandoned land, there would be a chewed-up, scruffy look with chunks of old foundation concrete, scraps of painted sheet metal and wire, weeds that had gotten in where the sod was broken up or whatever little enterprise was attempted. None of that here, not kept up, just never messed up in the first place. It's just the way it was it always must have been. Reservation land. There's no friendly motorcycle mechanic on the other side of those rocks, and I'm wondering if we're ready for this. If anything goes wrong, now we're in real trouble. I check the engine temp with my hand. It's reassuringly cool. I put in the clutch and let it coast for a second in order to hear it idling something sounds funny and i do it again it takes a while to figure out that it's not the engine at all there's an echo from the bluff ahead that lingers after the throttle is closed funny i do this two or three more times chris wonders what's wrong and i have him listen to the echo no comment from him this old engine has a nickels and dimes sound to it as if there were loose change flying around the inside. Sounds awful, but it's just normal valve clatter. Once you get used to that sound and learn to expect it, you automatically hear any difference. If you don't hear any, that's good. I tried to get John interested in that sound once, but it was hopeless. All he heard was noise, and all he saw was the machine and me with greasy tools in my hands, nothing else. That didn't work. He didn't really see what was going on and was not interested enough to find out. He isn't so interested in what things mean as in what they are. That's quite important that he sees things this way. It took me a long time to see this difference, and it's important for the Chattaqua that I make this difference clear. I was so baffled by his refusal even to think about any mechanical subject. I kept searching for ways to clue him to the whole thing, but didn't know where to start. I thought I would wait until something went wrong with his machine and then I would help him fix it and that way get him into it. But I goofed that one myself because I didn't understand the difference in the way he looked things. His handlebars had started flipping. Not badly, he said, just a little when you shoved hard on them. I warned him not to use his adjustable wrench on the tightening nuts. It was likely to damage the chrome and start small rust spots. He agreed to use my metric sockets and box ends. When he brought his motorcycle over, I got my wrenches out then notice that no amount of tightening would stop the slippage because the ends of the collars were pinched shut. You're going to have to shim those out, I said. What's a shim? That's a thin, flat strip of metal. You just slip it around the handlebar under the collar and it will open up the collar to where you can tighten it again. You use shims like like that to make adjustments in all kinds of machines. Oh, he said, he was getting interested. Good, where do you buy them? I've got some right here, I said gleefully, holding up a can of beer in my hand. He didn't understand for a moment. Then he said, what, a can? Sure, I said, best shim stock in the world. I thought this was pretty clever myself. Save Save him a trip to God knows where, to get shim stock, save him time, save him money. But to my surprise, he didn't see the cleverness of this at all. In fact, he got noticeably haughty about the whole thing. Pretty soon, he was dodging and filling with all kinds of excuses before I realized what his real attitude was. We have decided not to fix the handlebars after all. As far as I know, those handlebars are still loose. And I believe now that he was actually offended at the time. I have the nerve to propose a repair of his new $1,800 BMW, the pride of half a century of German mechanical fitness with a piece of old beer can. Oh, do you believe Since then, we have had very few conversations about motorcycle maintenance. None, now that I think of it. You push it any further, and suddenly you are angry without knowing why. I should say, to explain this, that beer can aluminum is soft and sticky as metals go. Perfect for the application. Aluminum doesn't oxidize in wet weather, or more precisely, it always has a thin layer of oxide that prevents any further oxidation also perfect. In other words, any true German mechanic with a half a century of mechanical finesse behind him would have concluded that this particular solution to this particularly particular technical problem was perfect. For a while, I thought what I should have done was sneak over the workbench, cut a shim for the beer can, removing the printing, and then come back and tell him we were in luck. It was the last one I had specially imported from Germany. That would have done it. A special shim from the private stock of Baron Alfred Krupp who had to sell it at great sacrifice, then he would have gone gaga over it. That Krupp's private shim fantasy gratified me for a while, but then it wore off, and I saw it was just being vindictive. In its place, grew that old feeling I've talked about before, a feeling that there's something bigger and bald that is apparent on the surface you follow these little discrepancies long enough and they sometimes open up into huge revelations. There was just a feeling on my part that this was something a little bigger than I wanted to take on without thinking about it. And it turned instead to my usual habit of trying to extract causes and effects to see what was involved that could possibly lead to such an impasse between John's view of that lovely shim and my own. This comes up all the time in mechanical work. I hang up. You just sit and stare and think and search randomly for new information and go away and come back. And after a while, the unforeseen factors start to emerge. What emerged in vague form at first and then in sharper outline was the explanation that I had been Seeing that shim in a kind of intellectual, rational, cerebral way in which the scientific properties of the metal were all that counted. John was going at it immediately and intuitively, grooving on it. I was going at it in terms of underlying form. He was going at it in terms of immediate appearance. I was seeing that the shim, what the shim meant. He was seeing what the shim was. That's how I arrive at the distinction. And when you see what the shim is, in this case, it's depressing. Who likes to think of a beautiful precision machine fixed with an old hunk of junk? I guess I forgot to mention, John is a musician, a drummer who works with groups all over town and makes a pretty fair income from it. I suppose he just thinks about everything the way he thinks about drumming, which is to say he doesn't really think about it at all. He just does it. Is with it. He just responded to fixing his motorcycle with the beer can the way he would respond to someone dragging the beat while he was playing. It just did a big thud with him, and that was it. He didn't want any part of it. At first this difference seemed fairly minor, then it grew and grew and grew until it began, until I began to see why I missed it. Some things you miss because they're so tiny you overlook them, but some things you don't see because they're so huge. We were both looking at the same thing, seeing the same thing, talking about the same thing, thinking about the same thing, except he was looking, seeing, talking, and thinking. From a completely different dimension. He really does care about technology. It's just that in this other dimension. He gets all screwed up. And is rebuffed by it. It just won't swing for him. He tries to swing it without any rational premeditation. And botches it. And botches it. And botches it. And after so many botches gives up, and just kind of puts a blanket curse on the whole nuts and bolts scene. He will not or cannot believe there is anything in this world for which grooving is not the way to go. What's the dimension he's in? The groovy dimension. I'm being awful square talking about all this mechanical stuff all the time. It's all just parts and relationships and analysis and synthesis and figuring things out. And it isn't really here. It's somewhere else, which thinks it's here, but a million miles away. This is what it's all about. He's on this dimensional difference, which underlay much of the cultural changes of the 60s. I think, and it's still in the process of reshaping our whole national outlook on things. The generation gap has been a result of it. The names B and hip grew out of it. Now it's become apparent that this dimension isn't a fad that's going to go away next year or the year after. It's here to stay because it's very serious and important way of looking at things that looks incompatible with the reason and order and responsibility, but actually it's not. Now we are down to the root of things. My legs have become so stiff they are aching. I hold them out one at a time, turn my foot far to the left. and That's one of my favorite parts in the whole book at the very beginning. The like the crystallization of the beginning of the inquiry with his buddy John was the, that's like the first boom. He doesn't see that shimstock at all for being soft metal to fill a gap. He sees a thing in a bag, Barcode from a factory that's labeled Shimstock. Shimstock. Which is the most interesting part, right? Of becoming self sufficient or agorist or whatever, in charge of yourself. You have to see things for their purpose, not what everybody else calls them. I guess if you're just fucking independently wealthy and trust fund maybe, yes. But right, once you start seeking things for what they actually do or the part that they play and can do, That's why on the prepping journey, I'm getting rid of shit now, <laughs> going light. Like, once you figure out like how the pieces are put together, because you understand the interactions of the parts and what the parts actually are, right? That's the whole jack thing. Swales aren't permaculture. <laughs> Food forests aren't permaculture. Like none of it is. It's just, It's a design science, right? See that potential energy or potential linkage in everything, then you see the world completely differently, <sighs> which is maybe the woke versus awoke division now. I don't know. On with the show. So we'll go to stretch the leg. It helps, but then the other muscles get tired for holding the leg out. What we have here is a conflict of visions of reality the world as you see it right here right now is reality regardless of what the scientists say it might be that's the way john sees it but the world as revealed by its scientific discoveries is also reality regardless of how it may appear and people in john's dimension are going to have to do more than just ignore it if they want to hang onto their vision of reality. John will discover this if his points burn out. That's really why he got upset that day when he couldn't get his engine started. It was an intrusion on his reality. It just blew a hole right through his whole creepy way of looking at things and he would not face up to it because it seemed to threaten his whole lifestyle in a way he was experiencing the same sort of anger scientific people have sometimes about abstract art or at least used to have that didn't fit their lifestyle either. What you've got here really are two realities, one of immediate artistic appearance and one of underlying scientific explanation and they don't match, and they don't fit, and they don't really have much of anything to do with one another. That's quite a situation. You might say there's a little problem here. At one stretch in the long desolate road, we see an isolated grocery store. Inside, in back, we find a place to sit on some packing cases and drink canned beer. The fatigue and backache are getting to me now. I push the packing case over to post and lean on that. Chris's expression shows he is really settling into something bad. This has been a long, hard day. I told Sylvia way back in Minnesota that we could expect a slump in spirits like this on the second or third day, and now it's here. Minnesota? When was that? A woman, badly drunk, is buying beer for some man she's got outside in a car. She can't make up her mind what brand to buy, and the wife of the owner waiting on her is getting mad. She still can't decide, but then sees us, then weaves over and asks if we own the motorcycles. We not, yes. Then she wants a ride on one. I move back and let John handle this. He puts her off graciously, but she comes back again and again, Offering him a dollar for a ride. I make some jokes about it, but they're not funny and just add to the depression. We get out and back onto the brown hills and eat again. By the time we reach Lamont, we are really aching tiring. At a bar we hear about a campground to the south. John wants to camp in a park in the middle of Lamont. A comment that sounds strange and angers Chris greatly. I'm more tired now than I can remember having have been in a long time. The others do. But we drag ourselves through the supermarket, pick up whatever groceries come to mind with some difficulty, pack them into the cycles. The sun is so far down we're running out of light. It'll be dark in an hour. We can't seem to get moving. I wonder, are we dawdling or what? Come on chris let's go i say don't holler at me i'm ready we drive down a country road from Lamont, exhausted for what seems like a long long time but can't be too long because the sun is still above the horizon the campsite is deserted good but there is less than half an hour of sun and no energy left this is the hardest now I try to get unpacked as fast as possible, but I'm so stupid with exhaustion. I just set everything by the camp road without seeing what a bad spot it is. Then I see it is too windy. This is a high plains wind. It is semi-desert here. Everything burned up and dry except for a lake, a large reservoir of some sort below us. The wind blows from the horizon across the lake and hits us with sharp gusts. It's already chilly. There are some scrubby pines back from the road about 20 yards, and I asked Chris to move the stuff over there. He doesn't do it. He wanders off down the reservoir. I carry the gear over by myself. I see between trips that Sylvia is making a real effort at setting things up for cooking, but she's as tired as I am. The sun goes down. John's gathered wood, but it's too big. And the wind is too dusty it's hard to start it needs to be splintered into kindling i go back over the scrub pines hunt around through the twilight for the machete but it's already so dark in the pines i can't find it i need the flashlight i look for it but it's too dark to find that either i go back and start up the cycle and ride it back over to shine the headlight on the stuff so that i can find the flashlight i look through all the stuff item to find a flashlight. It takes a long time to realize I don't need the flashlight. I need the machete, which is in plain sight. By the time I get it back to John, as the fire coming, I use the machete to hack up some larger pieces of wood. Chris reappears. He's got the flashlight. When are we going to eat? He complains. We're getting it fixed as fast as possible, I tell him. Leave the flashlight here. He disappears again, taking the flashlight with him. The wind blows the fire so hard it doesn't reach up to cook the steaks. We try to fix up a shelter from the wind using large stones from the road, but it's too dark to see what we're doing. We bring the cycles over and catch the seed and the cross beam of headlights. The your lights, bits of ash blowing up from the fire suddenly glow bright white in it, then disappear in the wind, Bang! <clears throat> a loud explosion behind us. Then I hear Chris giggling. Sylvia is upset. I found some firecrackers, Chris said. I kept my anger in time and say to him, told me, it's time to eat now. I need some matches, he says. Sit down and eat. Give me some matches first. Sit down and eat. He sits down, and I try to eat the steak with my army mess kit knife, but it's too tough. And so I get out a hunting knife and use it instead. The light from the motorcycle headlight is full upon me so that the knife, when it goes down into the mess gear, is in full shadow and I can't see where it's going. Chris says he can't cut his either, and I pass my knife to him. While reaching for it, he dumps everything onto the tarp. No one says a word. I'm not angry that he spilled it. I'm angry that now the tarp's going to be greasy for the rest of the trip. Is there any more? He asks. Eat that, I say. It just fell on the tarp. It's dirty, he says. Well, that's all there is. A wave of depression hits. I just want to go to sleep now. But he's angry, and I expect we're going to have one of his little scenes. I wait for it, and pretty soon it starts. I don't like the taste of this, he says. Yes, that's rough, Chris. I don't like any of this. I don't like this camping at all. It's your idea, Sylvia says. You're the one who wanted to go camping. She shouldn't say that, but there's no way she can know. You take his bait and he'll feed you another one and then another and another until you finally hit him, which is what he really wants. I don't Carrie says well you ought to she says well i don't an explosion point is very near sylvia and john look at me but i remain deadpan sorry about this but there's nothing i can do right now any argument will just worsen things well i'm not hungry chris says no one answers My well, stomach hurts he says The explosion is avoided when Chris turns and walks the into the darkness. We finish eating. I help Sylvia clean up. Then we sit around for a while. We turn the cycle lights off to conserve the batteries because the light from them is ugly anyway. The wind has died down some and there is a little light from the fire. After a while, my eyes become accustomed to it. The food and anger have taken off some of the sleepiness. Chris doesn't return. Do you suppose he's just punishing? Sylvia asks. I suppose, I say, although it doesn't sound quite right. I think about it and add, that's a child psychology term, a context I dislike. Let's say he's being a complete bastard. John laughs a little. Anyway, I say, it was a good supper. I'm sorry he had to act up like this. Oh, that's all right, John says. I'm just sorry he won't get anything to eat. It won't hurt him. You don't suppose he'll get lost out there? Nah, he'll holler if he is. Now that he is gone, we have nothing to do. I become more aware of the space all around us. There's not a sound anywhere. Lone prairie. Sylvia says, do you suppose he really has stomach pains? Yes, I say, somewhat dogmatically. I'm sorry to see the subject continued, but they deserve a better explanation than they're getting. They probably sense that there's more to it that they've heard. I'm sure he does, I finally say. He's been examined half a dozen times for it. Once it was so bad, we thought it was appendicitis. I remember we were on a vacation up north. I just finished getting out an engineering proposal for a $5 million contract that just about did me in. That's a whole other world. No time and no patience, 600 pages of information to get out the door in one week, and it was about ready to kill three different people, and we thought we'd better head for the woods for a while. I can hardly remember what part of the woods we were in had just spinning with engineering data. Anyway... Chris was just screaming. We couldn't touch him until I finally saw I was going to have to pick him up fast and get him to a hospital. And where that was, I'll never remember. But they found nothing. Nothing? No. But it happened again on other occasions, too. Don't they have any idea? Sylvia asked. This spring, they diagnosed it as the beginning symptoms of mental illness. What? John says. It's too dark to see Sylvia or John now or even the outlines of the hills. I listen for sounds in the distance, but hear none. I don't know what to answer and say nothing. Then I look hard, and I can make out stars overhead, but the fire in front of us makes it hard to see them. The night all around is thick and obscure. My cigarette is down in my fingers, and I put it out. I didn't know that, Sylvia's voice said. All traces of anger are gone we wondered why you brought him instead of your wife. She says, I'm glad you told us. John shoves some of the unburned ends of wood into the fire. Sylvia says, what do you suppose the cause is? John's voice rasps as if to cut it off. But I answer, I don't know. Causes and effects don't seem to fit. Causes and effects are a result of thought. I would think mental illness comes before thought. This doesn't make sense to them. I'm sure it doesn't make sense to me. And I'm too tired to try to think it out <clears throat> and give it up. What do the psychiatrists think? John asks. Nothing. I stopped it. Stopped it. Yes. Is that good? I don't know. There's no rational reason I can think of for saying it. It's not good. Just a mental block of my own. I think about it and all the good reasons for it and make plans for an appointment and even look for the phone number and then the block hits and it's just like a door slammed shut. That doesn't sound right. No one else thinks so either. I suppose I can't hold out forever. But why, Sylvia asks. I don't know why. It's just that I don't know. They are not here. Surprising word, I think to myself. Never used it before. Not of kin. Sounds like hillbilly talk. Not of kind. Same root. Kindness, too. They can't have real kindness towards him. They're not his kin. That's exactly the feeling. Old word. So ancient, it's almost drowned out. What a change through the centuries. Now everybody can be kind. And everybody's supposed to be, except that not long ago, it was something you were born into and couldn't help. Now it's just a faked up attitude half the time. Like teachers, the first day of class. But what do they really know about kindness who are not kin? It goes over and over again through my thoughts. Mean kind, my child. There it is in another language, mean kinder. For rates, so spot, that's not in vain. sd the bot. time. Strange feeling from that. What are you thinking about? Sylvia asked an old poem by Goth It must be 200 years old. I had to learn it a long time ago. I don't know why I should remember it now, except the strange feeling comes back. How does it go, Sylvia asks. I try to recall a man is riding along a beach at night through the wind. It's a father with his son whom he holds fast in his arm. He asks his son why he looks so pale. The son replies, father, don't you see the ghost? The father tried to assure the boy it's only a bank of fog along the beach. He sees an only rustling of the leaves in the wind he hears. But the son keeps saying, it is the ghost. And the father writes harder and harder through the night. How does it end? In failure, death of the child, the ghost wins. The wind blows light up from the coals. And I see Sylvia look at me startled. But that's another land and another time. I say, here life is the end. And ghosts have no meaning. I believe that. I believe in all this, too. I say, look out at the darkened prairie. Although I'm not sure of what it all means yet. I'm not sure of much of anything these days. Maybe that's why I talk so much. The coals die lower and lower. We smoke our cigarettes. Chris is off somewhere in the darkness. But I'm not going to shag after him. John is carefully silent, and Sylvia is silent, and suddenly we are all separate, all alone, in our private universes, and there is no communication among us. We douse the fire, and go back to the sleeping bags in the pines. I discover that this one tiny refuge of scrub pines, where I have put the sleeping bag, is also the refuge from the wind of millions of mosquitoes up from the West Reservoir. The mosquito repellent doesn't stop them at all. I crawl deep into the sleeping bag and make one little tiny hole for breathing. I'm almost asleep when Chris finally shows up. There's a great big sand pile over there, he says, crunching around. Pine needles, yes, I say, go to sleep. You should see it. Will you come see it tomorrow? We won't have time. Can I play over there tomorrow morning? Yes. Yes. He makes inter- interminable noises, getting undressed, and into the sleeping bag. He is in it. Then he rolls around. Then he is silent. Then he rolls some more. Then he says, Dad. What? What was it like when you were a kid? Go to sleep, Chris. There are limits to what you can listen to. Later, I hear sharp inhaling of phlegm that tells me he has been crying. And though I am exhausted, I don't sleep. A few words of consolation might have helped there. He was trying to be friendly, but the words aren't forthcoming for some reason. Consoling words are more for strangers for hospitals, not kin. Little emotional band-aids like that aren't what he needs or what's sought. I don't know what he needs or what suck. A gibbous moon comes up from the horizon beyond the pines and by its slow patient arc across the sky, I measure hour after hour of semi-sleep. Too much fatigue, the moon and strange dreams and sounds of mosquitoes and old fragments of memory just jumbled and mixed in an unreal lost landscape in which the moon is shining and yet there is a bank of fog and I am riding a horse and Chris is with me and the horse jumps over a small stream that runs through the sand towards the ocean somewhere beyond and then that is broken and then it reappears and in the fog there appears and intimation of a figure it disappears when i look at it directly it then reappears in the corner of my vision when i turn my gaze. i am about to say something to call to it to recognize it but then do not knowing that to recognize it by any gesture is to give it a reality which it must not have but it is a figure i recognize even though I do not let on. It is Phaedrus, evil spirit, insane. From a world without life or death, the figure fades, and I hold panic down, tight, not rushing it, just letting it sink in, not believing it, not disbelieving it but the hair crawls slowly on the back of my skull. He is calling Chris. Is that it? Yes. All right. Chapter Five. So interesting, uh, yeah. <laughs> if you haven't had kids, mm, yeah. Uh, the whole like taking Chris on the on the trip, right? Chris having um, actual physical pain that isn't of, manif- you know the doctors can't find. So it's obviously psychosomatic, right? And they're starting to call it mental illness and wanting to do shit. And his dad's like, fuck that. Let's go on a motorcycle trip. Yep. It's a thing. Handle the way out. Handle it (laughs) for sure. Let's go to the fucking woods. Back to back to realness, away from fakeness. But yeah, it uh, it's interesting, right? You don't fucking eat. You don't fucking eat. You tip your food over. You tip your food over. Uh, and then his whole talk about the the kind, the family, the kind, right? You know you do the bitch move and like fix little kid some more food and make sure he gets us three squares a day You me, mean me, me, or do you fucking treat him like a semi-adult on a fucking semi-adult trip like you toss your food on the ground you toss your fucking food on the ground move it along you know oh <laughs> uh, yeah if you yeah I don't know. Uh, I know my personal opinion. (laughs) Uh, You can always get me at Scrambling University on Telegram where all of these conversations continue. Uh, Yeah, it's a dialogue, right? It's a dialogue. Um, I don't know. So yeah, this chapter, the two things, right, Uh, well, gets to the core of the dissection of the world into like people that see the underlying form and people that see the thing that they are told that it is. I would say nowadays, 50 years later after writing the book, that it's the MSM, right? The mainstream media that the oligarchs vomit torch, right, of oh, <laughs> just shit-spraying fucking truth from and, and everything, right? Like, you just roll up to the shit-pile with a fucking hose and just spray like, this is a lovely damn, you know, this is a lovely lawn on top of a big shit-pile. And, you know, it looks like a lovely lawn, so it must be, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh. You're not feeling perfect. We got a pill for that. Oh, my God. All the fucking, like, skin commercials for Jesus Christ. Every fucking thing will heal you from the inside out. Yeah, suck a dick. Your skin's your largest, largest organ in your fucking body. So... You're gonna start taking pills to fuck with an organ and treat a symptom, right? Like a flare-up on the thing, Wow, ah, like a tumor on your liver. Why'd the tumor get there? Like fucking, ain't right? Some like skin shit that they're trying to sell all the fucking all these medicines for. If you listen to the roll-off of the fucking horribleness after the like side effects, because you're slathering the fucking hems on a organ yeah, how about ask the real question why is the organ suboptimal at the moment I don't know I'm not a fucking doctor Dr. Ken Berry go check it out he'll fucking tell you <laughs> oh yeah 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 and then the gut biome to chemical factory internally to the fucking machine. Woof. I can tell you got a hundred micrograms, like something fucking so small, you can't really measure it. Can't see it. Fuck, better hope the chemists are good. Yeah, a hundred micrograms of fucking LSD will just Different whole perception of reality for sure for a while, uh, right? So, if that tiniest amount of tiny chemical, right, or fuck, try eating a couple grams of mushrooms. If that tiny amount of psilocybin can <laughs> huge blast you into another universe of total consciousness of different dimension of thinking, completely, right? Then why can't the billions of gut creatures that live inside your fucking biome that are eating the chemical factory food shit that you're shoveling in converting it to some wackadoodle chems that who the fuck knows right in the tiniest of amounts to like make you maybe just feel like shit or like scared or paranoid or fucking worried right or hypersensitive to the fucking slather stream coming out of the fucking talking devices pff, of FUD fear factor bullshit I don't know I don't know yeah I don't know yeah If I had a kid that was sick, what would I tell them? Uh, Maybe eat a proper human diet. Start there. Start there. Eat what humans walked around like fucking apes for like millennia. Eat nothing else. Just that. Nothing that comes from men downtown in the factory. No fakey this, like, oh, I need protein because I'm a fucking fake vegetarian. So I'm going to eat the, like, blah, blah, scrumpled up crustaceanal shells or whatever the fuck. Come on. There was no caveman walking around eating that. Yeah. So what would I do first? I would first make sure my kid was sleeping on a real fucking schedule with the sun and the moon. Regulate sleep. Second, feed him real fucking food, real food, real food, actual food. Okay, man, walking around would get not shit from the man downtown. In fact, right, and then fucking let him be, right. Ah, the kids like, school terrorizes me." Ah, okay, don't go to fucking school. Not good. You convince me. You're now schooling yourself. You're in charge. Go, do it. Yeah. yeah, fucking no excuses. Yeah, I love it when you just let the kid fucking not eat. Yeah. yeah, that's how it is, man. You fucking, you you do your shit. You do your shit, right? Whatever happens, happens. Oh, it's beautiful. Yep. I used to let to get I used to let Get into a lot of shit and whatever fucking followed me home. Usually they're like yeah fucking you gotta eat that too <laughs> uh, Yeah, oh The teacher <laughs> Life all right. Well fuck we're coming up on an hour. Let's not make this too long I did lots of commercial during the show go back and look in the uh, comment live stream on the side uh, uh, that was my plain cream. Does absolutely nothing. But, you know, ow, I have no meniscus, so I put it on my knee every day. And I'm just telling you what I do with it. I'm telling you, it does anything. It says right on it. does absolutely nothing. Uh. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Yeah. And my drug war vet shirt. Yeah. Grab those on the website. Uh, And my goddamn world's greatest coffee. Seriously. When I was taking, like, Billion-dollar clients, like big old motherfuckers, like, around. Waldorf Astoria, Embassy Suites, we worked with Panera Bread, like, people who are now known for having, like, fuck their coffee's good. We hunted their beans. I just happened to work with the Sea Star guys and office coffee and some other bullshit. But anyway, the team, right? It was a team. I learned about the world's best coffee, and how little it costs in reality if you look at your profit model a little differently to make literally the world's best fucking coffee not cost ridiculous amount of money i mean you can you can play that game go look at some of dick's shit it's over roasted But the beans yeah yeah so anyway can be a game cannot be a game not a game for me <laughs> we are uh, yeah we got a few more uh, people on board for the uh, fucking nft launch to 100 so i'm gonna have to redo that board now that i look at that yeah we got we gotta update that a um, few more people are on so keep getting people on the c4 c4 each of these bags should literally be i mean starbucks is selling the ethiopian uh, pounds for 38 bucks this is fucking way better than that so yeah each one should be 40. You get 50 bucks worth of coffee a month for 40 bucks. Go, Or if you want cannabinoid shit, go look at my store. Or we hand make soap by request. Stay at my Airbnb, camp at my fucking hip camp, whatever. Don't care. Consulting services. Whatever extraction of shit you want. C4. As soon as we get to 100, close the door. Shh general public fuck off i'm not making coffee for you anymore you want coffee go see one of my club members and i only ship on the 15th so order from them right so you can get a position now and sell coffee for way more later when i shut the door if you want to play that game all right thanks for tuning in next thursday zen six and uh next tuesday if you like music I review fish songs, so I talk about a fish song every Tuesday. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, woo, a lot more crazy. I usually publish on, uh, on Sunday night what I'm doing for the week. If you look on the YouTube channel, you can peek ahead. So drop into my YouTube, give me a like. If you would, subscribe. Turn off the ringer notification if you don't want to get notified. I won't bug you. All right. Peace out. Love you guys. See you next Thursday at least, if not tomorrow. Have a great day. Go enjoy the sunshine as well.